Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll be looking at the first eight verses that describe for us the ministry of the Apostle Paul at Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So let me read the inspired Word of God. It's such a treasure that we have in our hands, whether it's on your cell phone or in a book. But we are blessed so much to have God's holy word to read and study. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But after we have already had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, We had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Paul's ministry, wherever he went, endured a a fair amount of persecution and attacks from his enemies. Some tried to ruin his reputation and thereby ruin the message. Some tried to turn the new converts away from the gospel, away from the Apostle Paul by driving a wedge between them by all kinds of fallacious attacks and verbal assaults. They would say, for example, that the Apostle Paul is telling you lies to deceive you for selfish reasons. He's just trying to pad his own pockets with your money. He's exploiting you. And then notice when things got tough, he disappeared. He's not around any longer because he doesn't really care for you. He just cares for himself. He's really trying to take advantage of you. And that's why he abruptly left Thessalonica after things got tough. And all of these kinds of accusations would be coming at the Apostle Paul. They would be distorting the facts or making up false lies to create a fire to try to in some way destroy not only the person, but also the message as well. So the Apostle Paul, for example, in this passage, 
is addressing the launching of this smear campaign against him to discredit him himself and also to discredit his ministry. And so out of a love for God and love for the gospel and love for the church, Paul is going to respond to some of those accusations in this uh, paragraph that we'll be looking at this morning. He's going to engage in self-defense, not just for self-serving purposes, just not because he wants to rescue his own name, but because his name is tied to his ministry, which is tied to the gospel, which is tied to the glory of God. So he must defend himself. And in so doing, we find in this uh, section one of the most amazing windows into the heart, the life, and the ministry into this amazing man of God. Paul was miraculously converted by Christ on the road to Damascus. He saw the Lord with his own eyes. He was commissioned by Christ to engage in this ministry. He received all kinds of supernatural revelations from Christ to help him understand the depth of the mysteries of the gospel, the mystery of Christ. He was incredibly gifted by God. He may have had all the gifts of the Spirit. There's really none who can compare with the Apostle Paul in so many ways. And yet he endured all kinds of abuses and attacks for his ministry and for his devotion to Christ. So as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see a window into the into the heart and life of the Apostle Paul. This is a window that we on many levels can seek to imitate. Because Paul would oftentimes exhort the churches to be imitators of me as I also am of Christ Jesus. And there's a sense in which, maybe not in every sense, because of the uniqueness of who Paul was and of his ministry, But there are applications that we can make to our own lives from the life of this amazing man. Now, obviously, he was an apostle. He was planting churches. He was an authority directly given to him by Christ. We're not on that level, obviously. But whether you're an elder in a church or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or a Bible study leader, or whether you have employees under you or students under you, or whether you're a parent with children under your authority, to whatever degree we shepherd other people in one way or another, we can learn from the zeal, the devotion, the commitment of the Apostle Paul to his ministry and glean encouragement and exhortation for our ministries as well. So keep that in mind as we work through this uh, passage. So let's uh, begin by looking at verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. So the first thing he's saying to the Thessalonians is that when they did arrive in Thessalonica to preach the gospel, uh, Their coming was not in vain. And you can interpret that in different ways, that it was not in vain. Some say that what he means by that is our ministry was not in vain because it produced results. God saved many of you, so our ministry was not in vain when we came to you. 
But another way that commentators interpret this is that we didn't come empty-handed because the word vain is used in the New Testament sometimes for someone who is empty-handed. In other words, we didn't come to you empty-handed looking to get stuff from you. No, we came with our hands full. We brought you the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We brought blessings from God to you. So we didn't come empty-handed. So maybe that's what he, he has in mind. But whichever way he means by that, notice in verse 1 he's saying, for you yourselves know. So he's draw, calling upon them and their witness to help in his own defense. You observe this, you have seen this, so I'm calling you and your memory to uh, come in and support the, the truthfulness of what I'm saying. It's interesting, he'll, he'll say this phrase similar, or something similar, as you know, three times in this passage, verse 1, 2, and 5. And then he'll also bring in God as a witness in verse 5. So what he's trying to convince them of is that you guys know what I'm telling you. All these lies about me, all these distortions that they're claiming are false. You know it. And God is witness as well. You're a witness that they're wrong. And God is a witness. So it's interesting how he, he does that several times. So in verse 2, he starts out by reminding them of the mistreatment that he endured. So if you're, if you're there just to get stuff from people, you're not going to be willing to endure much mistreatment. If it's all about you and about your health, wealth, and success, once the mistreatment starts coming, you're out of there. You're moving on because it's all about you. And Paul is pointing out the fact, look, we were willing to come and endure all kinds of affliction in our ministry to preach the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 2. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know... We had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So now he's emphasizing that we came to you from Philippi, and you know what happened to us in Philippi. We endured suffering and mistreatment at Philippi. Now obviously you remember back when he was at Philippi, Paul and Silas, after they cast out the demon from that fortune teller little girl they were arrested they were humiliated they had all the robes tore tore off of them they were beaten with rods with many blows and then they were thrown into prison their feet were stuck in the stocks in the in the deepest darkest part of the jail even though they were roman citizens and they were mistreated that way unlawfully and he says, you know that. He says, we are not only did they suffer at Philippi, they were also mistreated. That indicates that there was a lot of verbal abuse as well as bodily abuse that he had to endure. But did that cause him to give up and abandon the gospel? And he did leave because he was forced to leave by the city officials at Philippi. But he was not one to just abandon the process for any kind of affliction. He did leave because he was forced to. 
But he says, then when we came to Thessalonica, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. And you remember here at Thessalonica, if you go back to Acts chapter 17, you can realize that when they were there ministering at Thessalonica, he not only endured much opposition, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, he mentions much tribulation. So obviously he was there persevering, preaching the gospel, building the church through much suffering and opposition and tribulation, even at Thessalonica. The reason why he left, because you remember the Jews formed a, a, a mob of thugs probably from the marketplace, and they came to arrest Paul and probably beat him up. They couldn't find Paul, so they, they dragged Jason before the city officials. He was one of the new converts. And they made Jason pledge, and that pledge that Jason had to receive from the city officials must have been extremely serious. And the, and the apostles decided we need to move on for the safety and protection of the church here. So they moved on. So all of these accusations, look, they don't care from you. They just, they just up and left. You've got to understand the story of it. And he again appeals to the Thessalonians you know this to be true. We were there ministering, and the only reason why they left, again, because they were forced to for the safety and preservation of the church there. So when you look back on that, you can, you can see how the cancel culture is nothing new. Because the apostles experienced being canceled by being expelled and driven out of the cities. So whenever the the world doesn't like the message of Christianity, the gospel, or the moral values of Christianity, they're still trying to cancel us. But the, again, there's nothing new under the sun. So what Paul is saying is that we were willing to endure mistreatment in bringing you the gospel, and you know that to be a fact. But he says we had the boldness in our God to, to preach to you the gospel. With God's help, they did not give up. They were not overly discouraged by the opposition. They hung in there until it became too dangerous for the church. And remember, that's one of the principles of Jesus. There is a time to move on. He told His disciples that whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. Remember that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 23? That's kind of the pattern they're following. Whenever they persecute you in one city move on and that's what they're that's what they're doing but when they moved on to philippi um, from philippi to thessalonica they had the boldness of god not to stop their ministry but to continue to press it on one, one of the practical applications i think for us is that whoever you're leading whoever's under your authority whoever you're shepherding, whether it's your children or whether it's other people or whoever it might be in whatever, whatever context it might be, uh, we inevitably will face opposition. And what we need to do is to find our strength in God, not in ourselves. And the Apostle Paul had to learn that. He learned about his weakness. But he says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. For God's power is perfected in my weakness. 
So as you, as you go through opposition, like the Apostle Paul did, and mistreatment, when you're trying to live faithfully for Jesus Christ, don't be discouraged. Find your strength and boldness and courage in God. He can strengthen you to press on, even though there's all kinds of, of opposition out there. It can help you to persevere um, even in times of tribulation. So he talks about his mistreatment of his ministry. And then he goes to talk about the attacks on the message of his ministry. We read that in verse 3. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. And these are the talking points of those who oppose the Apostle Paul. He's teaching error. He's, his ministry, his personal life is full of impurity. And he's just out to deceive you. Those were the, the main talking points that Paul was uh, trying to defend himself concerning. Paul's message was full of errors, they said. And they tried to lump Paul in with a lot of these traveling philosophers and religious con artists of the day who were guilty of these three charges. And, and Paul's opponents were trying to lump him in with them. They were taking the same errors and faults of these con artists that were traveling around for various reasons, and they're trying to accuse the Apostle Paul of the same thing. So notice some of the things here. Our exhortation, our teaching, our instruction, our preaching to you did not come from error because they were accusing him of lies and falsehood. Now, this probably came from a lot of the Jewish opposition who said, look, he's talking about this, this Messiah who, who died and rose again. That's not the Messiah. And they would, they would contradict Paul and say he was teaching error. But, of course, Paul was easily able to defend the gospel from the Scriptures but they were attacking his message, saying that it was wrong. It's full of lies. But again, this was something that uh, they obviously were blind to, but the uh, Thessalonians certainly realized that they, the, the opponents were wrong. So they were attacking his message. Secondly, they were attacking his motives in the word impurity. See, Paul has impure motives when he's coming to you. He's not pure, and so they attack his, his motives. This word impure can refer to moral impurity or defilement, and it can, the word can suggest sexual improprieties. In fact, Paul will use the same word later on of sexual improprieties. So part of the attack against Paul is that could be, possibly, that he was impure in his personal life. Now you have to understand the context of this because in Thessalonica, as throughout the Roman world, many of the pagan temples employed uh, sexual improprieties in the worship of their God. There's a lot of temple prostitutes 
that were engaged, and this is how you would worship God, is engaged with temple prostitutes. I mean, if there's ever a religion that fits the depravity of man and fits with worldly standards, it would be that kind of religion. Here, you can come and, and expend your, your lusts on these, on these prostitutes and worship God at the same time. And because that was so much of the, of the fabric of religion in that day, it was easy for them to accuse the apostle. Well, he's impure too. And maybe because, remember, some of the early converts of the apostle Paul were some of the leading women of the city. And maybe they thought since there were women there that maybe he was guilty of some impropriety. But they're just taking mud and they're throwing everything they can to see what might stick. And of course, that did not stick at all. They falsely accused Paul of these things, but uh, obviously everyone knew that was a complete and total lie. You know, it's just so amazing how easy it is for people just to make up lies about, about others. It happens all the time, it seems like, in the news media. But, uh, but that's what they were doing. They were accusing his motives of being impure in one way or another. He's not really interested in you. He's only interested in himself. And then they criticize his methods probably by the word deceit. See, he's not coming honestly and above board. He's coming deceptively to try to take stuff from you. Of course, Paul was anything but deceitful in his methods. They were accusing him of being a trickster like all these other traveling, vagabond philosophers and religious people, but certainly not the Apostle Paul. To the church at Corinth, Paul said, we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's what he was committed to. Not deceit, but they were accusing his methods of being deceitful. And then notice what he goes on. Now he begins to give his rebuttal, his defense. And in verse 4, the first part of the verse, he defends his message. So they're attacking him on three levels. His message, his motives, and his method. So now he defends his message in 4a. He says, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. He said, we're not peddling errors or lies like you're accusing us of. No, we've been approved by God. And that word implies that we've been tested by God and we've been shown to be faithful by God. We have passed the test. He has tested us. And He has approved us to be stewards of the gospel. That's what He's saying. We are approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not telling lies. We're not making things up. We're not dreaming this stuff up. We're not in inventing it or crafting something that's not true. God approves of us to be entrusted with the gospel. We're giving you the truth of God. This is what we're speaking. And then also understand the implication of as you know. So he's defending his message by saying they have been approved messengers by God. 
to be entrusted with the stewardship of the gospel of truth. So he defends himself in that way. So notice the impurity is going to deal with the motives and the deceit with the methods. So let's carry this on now. We look at him defending his motives of ministry. So he's not, as we saw earlier in the previous verse, he's not impure in his motives. And so he begins to to lay that out. Verse 4. Not as pleasing men. So he's speaking, but his motives are not to be a man pleaser. But God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know. Again, he appeals to their witness. Nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. So what's he addressing here? Well, his motives. He's primarily saying that our motives are not impure because we did not come pleasing men. We're not speaking to please men. We're speaking to please God. So our motives are pure. So all of Paul's ministry was very God-centered. And when we look at our ministries, whatever it may be, it should be God-centered. Our aim is not to please men in a negative sense, but to please God who examines our hearts, he says. So God knows our hearts. God knows everything about us. And we know that He knows. In effect, Paul is saying, so our aim is to please God, not to please men. You cannot carry out your ministry if you're focused on pleasing men. Now, there's a, there's a certain good sense in which we strive to, to please men for their good. But Paul is talking about in a negative sense where we're men pleasers. Everything we do, we do so that it pleases other people. And Paul says that's not our motive. We're not men pleasers. We strive to please God. So Paul had received his message directly from the risen and exalted Christ whose eye is ever upon him. And this God continues to examine his heart. This is the same word examine as the same word as approved earlier in the verse. Only here it's an ongoing process. God continues to examine our hearts. Every day, every hour, he's examining our hearts. And we're mindful of that. So our goal is to please Him because He's continually examining our hearts. We're not just trying to to please men. If they were to be men-pleasers, then they would have to change their message, right? Because the message of the Gospel speaks about things that men are not pleased to hear about. How men are sinners, how men are under the judgment of God. And there's a day of judgment coming. And if they don't repent and believe, then they will be judged and receive the wrath of God. That's not a man-pleasing message. If someone's a man-pleaser, then their lives, their words, their actions are always aimed to please men. And Paul says, that's not our goal. And that's why there's so much opposition 
against him because what, what people were hearing, they hated. They did not like it. They were not pleased with it. So they would persecute and they would try to destroy him. So whoever is out there saying, look, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're just, they're just out to please men. Are you kidding? And again, Paul can say, as you know, and as God is our witness, our motives are pure. They're not impure. So Paul's ministry manual was not Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, but How Do We Please God? And that should be your motive and my motive for our work and everything else we do, our ministry, is to, is to please God and not just please other people. And because God examines our hearts, as Paul emphasized here, then we are responsible to God, and He knows at every point in time whether we're trying to please Him or please ourselves or please other people, and He wants us to please Him. So that's a, that's, that's a, that's a challenge to all of us. As he goes on to add to that in verse 5, we never came with flattering speech either. So again, this is his motive. His motive is pure. We're not coming to flatter people in order to take advantage of people. Our motives are pure. Now, this is diff- flattery here is different than a genuine word of encouragement or sincere praise. This is not what the word flattery means. This word flattery involves a a form of deception where you deceive people. This is what we find in Proverbs 29, verse 5. A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. In other words, you're just flattering people because you're wanting to take advantage of So you build them up so they'll really, really like you so he'll give you the raise the next time you know it comes up or whatever. Paul says, we're not engaging in flattery. We're not trying to deceive people. Our motives are pure. We're not like the, the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees engaged in flattery. They even did it with the Lord Jesus. In Matthew 22, We read, then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. So so they're going to try to trap the Lord. And so notice what they say. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth. And defer to no one, for you are not partial to anybody. You smell the flattery there? They didn't believe that this was true of Jesus. They're trying to ensnare Him and trap Him. So they come with this false flattery to try to let Him lower His guard to trick Him and trap Him into saying something that they can accuse Him and ultimately kill Him for. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? See, they were using flattery as hypocrisy 
to try to entrap and snare the Lord. And so what Paul is basically saying is we do not use flattery. We speak the truth. The gospel does not flatter sinners. The gospel tells them the truth about their sin and their predicament. And that's what we're doing. We're speaking the truth in love, but we're not trying to flatter anybody. We're trying to be honest and truthful with what we tell them. And we realize this is offensive to the depraved mind, and it can spark their anger and their rage, but that's okay. We're not flattering. We're, we're being faithful to the gospel. We're also pointing out false gospels would be the implication we're not flattering anybody. We're not telling, oh yeah, you can get your, your way to heaven by just being good. You're a good person. You can do that. He's not endorsing any false gospel, but condemning them. False gospels are like sugar treats laced with a deadly poison. And Paul is saying, we're not doing that. We're speaking the truth. He adds more about the purity of his motives. He says, not as, as pleasing men but God who examines our heart at the end of verse 4. So he's saying again, we're, we're not trying to please men. We're not trying to in any way uh, flatter men. And then he adds, we're also not trying to come with a pretext for greed. And God is witness. So he, he, he defends the purity of his ministry by saying we're not men-pleasers, we're not flatterers, and we're not coming with a pretext or a covering or a cloak to hide our greed. And this is certainly true of the traveling evangelists and philosophers. They were coming with a new philosophy or a new religion to get people, primarily to get money from them or to get status or praise from them. Paul says, you know what? We're not coming with a pretext for greed. We're not out here just to get your money like all these traveling religious philosophers are doing. This pretext word again suggests the idea of disguise where you disguise yourself as being holy and righteous, but you're covering up this, your heart motive of, of being greedy. You want their money or whatever it is. And, you know, you look around today, and I can't help just thinking of all the televangelists that are out there flying around in their private jets and living in their mansions, that really their heart is greedy. They just want what people have. It's kind of interesting. Uh, a number of many years ago, y'all remember uh, Ernest Angley? He just recently died. But uh, anyway, he was one of those Pentecostal televangelists uh, that would come. In all of his meetings, they were promoting the signs and miracles and wonders. And he was here in Oklahoma City. I'm pretty sure it was uh, Ernest Angley. And they said that during that one service, he passed the offering plate four times. Now, I was not there. I just want to make it clear. I did not attend that, that meeting. But I heard about it. And that's what the televangelists, the, it seems like their heart is just to soak the people for money. Everything they can get out of it. Instead of feeding the sheep, they fleece the sheep. It's all about them. Uh, Richard Phillips, in his commentary, tells 
about how these televangelists have, have so sold their soul basically for money and greed that non-believers think that every Christian church is like those people because that's what they see on TV. And uh, Richard Phillips said that he had an unbelieving neighbor and that's exactly what he thought about his own ministry. And he said, without a doubt, every time I had contact with my unbelieving neighbor, his words to me were always basically, so how are those tithes and offerings coming? Because he thought that in his church, his unbelieving neighbor thought in his church, all they really cared about was the offering plate. And that's true of the people in Paul's day. So he's emphatically saying his motives for his ministry is not their money like all these other people were. Paul made it a practice personally that whenever he was going to a new city, founding and establishing a new church, he would never accept financial support from them. After he established the church and then left he would receive financial aid from them. He did it from the Philippians. He did it from the Thessalonians and others as well. But not while he's there. Why? Because he did not want his reputation in any way tarnished by an accusation that he's just in it for the money. That there's a pretext for greed. And so he was very emphatic on that. And that's why he would work and he would make tents to support himself until the church was established, and then he moved on. And if that church then sent him funds, as many of them did, he would certainly use that so he could go full-time. And then notice at the end of verse 5, he adds, God is witness. So again, he's, now he's appealing to the highest court of appeal, and that is God Himself. God is witness that when we came to you, we weren't trying to get stuff from you. We were trying to give stuff to you, primarily the treasures of, of God and the gospel. And then he, uh, he adds in verse 6, still talking about defending his motives for his ministry, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. We did not seek glory from men. We didn't come so that you would honor us or that you would recognize us or that you would give us praise or that you would grant us fame and glory. We were not after the glory of men. Even though as apostles, we could have asserted our authority, we're not there to get glory from men. And he refers to himself and the others as apostles using that word probably in a in a, uh, a more generalized way than the technical term for the 12 apostles. But you see from this that praise seekers and men pleasers will always compromise the gospel if that is their motive. No, the motive is to please God. The motive is to honor God, to seek glory from God, to hear at the end of your life, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's what we're striving for. Paul says, not to get glory from you. Now again, the Pharisees, on the other hand, nah, that's what they wanted. Glory from men. 
So Jesus had to admonish them, his own disciples, not to imitate the Pharisees. Remember he said in Matthew 6.1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So don't just try to put your righteousness on display so that you'll receive their glory, their, their praise. So they'll notice you and praise you. Don't let that control the motives of your heart. So Jesus said, you know, when the Pharisees give alms, what do they do first? They sound the trumpet. So in the temple, well, everybody starts looking over where the trumpets are. That's where the treasury was. And then the Pharisee would time it just right. When everybody started looking, click, they'd drop in their, their coins. And Jesus said they sound the trumpet to be honored by men, and that's all the glory they get. They get the reward in full. They get the praise of men, but not the praise of God. Or when the Pharisees pray, they go out in the public, they get on the busy street corner, and then they lift their hands high, so all the people will look at them and say, my, what a godly man. And he says, they, that's all the reward they get. They get the fleeting, passing, soon to disappear praise of men, but no praise from God. And Paul is saying, our motives in our ministry is not to seek the glory of man. We're after God's approval, God's glory. And then finally, the third thing that they were attacking him, not only his message, not only his motives, but also his methods. His methods are wrong. His methods are distorted. His methods are, are such that um, he's trying to deceive you. And so, again, Paul addresses his methods when he says, but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. So here he's speaking that his method was, was not to be rough and abusive or to lord it over them. Remember Peter says to elders, don't, don't lord it over your people, but be a godly example to them. He said, we didn't come to abuse you, to try to rough you up, to get as much from you, your money or whatever it is from you. That was not our method. Our method was to be gentle among you. Not stern, not abrasive, not harsh. Now certainly there are times when in ministering the gospel you have to rebuke sin. Paul had to do that with Peter when he played the hypocrite. But when you're trying to help baby Christians grow, then you come with gentleness to them. And Paul is saying that was our method. We came in the gentleness of Christ. We came to, to help you grow, not to beat you down with legalism and all that kind of stuff. We came gentle to, to encourage you so that you can grow. When the winds are too, too strong with newly planted little plants, it can easily knock them over or bend them over or break them. It needs a gentle wind to help the, the little ones grow. And then he uses this female analogy. 
We came to you as like a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And that's a beautiful analogy of, of a woman that Paul said, this, this describes the way we came to you. Now, he's not ashamed to refer to a nursing mother to describe his own ministry. You know, the image of God is implanted in both men and women. And when it comes to establishing a church, when you're dealing with young believers who have many questions and many struggles, he says, we were gentle, we were, we were like that nursing mother. We have a couple of nursing moms here uh, in our church, several. And he says, that's the way we came. And that nursing mother analogy that Paul said described their method of ministry um, is really a, a beautiful one because it, it speaks to the nursing moms who sacrifice themselves for their babies. There's such a tender love and attentive care to those little children that a nursing mom exemplifies with her babies. The mother is, is, is focused on meeting the needs of that child at all times. She gives up her time. She gives up her energy. She gives up her body. She gives up her life for their children because she loves them. And Paul is saying, that was our heart with you. We came to you. Our method was not to be lording it over you, but man, we loved you like you were our children. We were like your nursemaids. We cared for you. And there's a tenderness and a sweetness that is being described in the way they, they love these believers. He goes on to say in verse 8, having so fond an affection for you. And by the way, later on, Paul is going to describe his ministry to them as a father. So here is the mother later on in verse 11. He'll bring in the father analogy he says in verse 8, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. In other words, you were beloved. The word dear really means because you were beloved. We loved you. And so he's saying to them that our method, you know, it was, it was gentle. It was to help you grow. It was to be patient in teaching you. It was to nurse you, to feed you, to understand your weaknesses and, and to help you grow. We were gentle. We were like a, a nursing mother. We were affectionate for you. And the word affection means our hearts had a strong yearning for you. We longed for you. We longed to see you grow and live for the glory of God. And so we imparted to you not only the treasure of the gospel that we were entrusted with, but we, in, we imparted to you our very lives, our souls, our hearts. And this is what godly leaders and ministers should do. They should give themselves to the little flock that's under their charge. And Paul says that was what we were committed to. We loved you and we gave to you even our own lives, because of that great love we had for you. So in this passage, Paul has defended his ministry, saying our message was true, our motives were pure, and our methods were honorable and God-glorifying. 
And he uses the example, basically, of himself and Silas and Timothy and their commitment to Jesus Christ. That basically all of them are living under one master, living a life of integrity, a life of honesty, a life committed to truth in their message, their motives, and their methods, because that's what God had called them to. And he says, you know that's true. And God knows. God is our witness. And so he's defending himself against all the cheap attacks from the enemies, setting forth personal integrity in his moral life, finances, and ministry. Personal integrity. Whoever you are leading, whoever the sheep are under your influence, they need to see in you and me a life of integrity. They need to see us living above the worldly values of the day. They need to hear it in the words, the language that comes out of our mouth. They need to hear our devotion for Christ. They need to see it in what we stand for and what we don't stand for. They need to see the witness of godliness within us. They need to see a life of integrity. And that's what Paul is confirming to them. That's what we were pursuing with God's help. You see, Paul practiced what he preached. He was not a pretender like all these other false philosophers and con men out there. No, he practiced what he preached. He wasn't out there just trying to serve himself, line his own pockets with their money. He was there to give to them, not to get from them. That was his heart. When you look at this description, I look at it and I see many, many, many areas in which I certainly fall short. Maybe when you examine Paul's message and motives and methods, you might see some areas of weakness in your life as well. Paul knew he was inadequate for all of this. He made that clear to the Corinthian church. He says, even though he had been entrusted with the gospel, he says, not that we were adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. See, we can, we can compare ourselves with Paul and say, wow, boy, I've got a lot of room to grow. And we all do. And it's very important that we recognize and acknowledge our utter inadequacies. We need God. We need His grace. And the Apostle Paul knew that. And he understood that it was by God's grace he did what he did. He said, I am what I am by the grace of God. And His grace did not prove vain toward me. For I labored even more than them all, but not me, but the grace of God with me. So wherever you are in your life, whatever little flock you have influence over, may the Spirit of God help us to model our message, our motives, and our methods in a way that will bring God the praise and God the glory, that our hearts would be pure, our words would be pure, our motives, our methods would be pure, and that in all things we seek to honor Him in spite of opposition that we may receive from the world. So the encouragement to me and the encouragement to you, again, 
is to, is to understand the commitment of Paul in his unique ministry, to see that he in some ways are an example for us, again, whether you're a parent or whether you're a teacher or whatever it may be. But we can draw from his integrity and seek to live it out in the same ways in our life so that God would be glorified. And when we do that, your ministry, your service will not be in vain. I close with Paul's encouragement to the church at Corinth. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. See, you have a ministry. Everybody has a ministry. And you live out your ministry through your daytime job, through your family life, through your personal life. You're engaged in ministry. And we need God's grace. But if we seek God's help, if we live steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, then our toil, your service, your ministry will not be in vain. It will bear fruit for the glory of God. It did in Paul's life. And by God's grace, it can in ours as well. May the Lord help us. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do uh, <clears throat> thank you for this very transparent autobiography, as it were, from the Apostle Paul, where he lays open his heart and exposes even the motives of his soul his methods, and his message. And in doing so, he's trying to encourage and build up the saints uh, to imitate him in these areas in which they can. But Father, we need godly examples today. And Paul is certainly a a great example to imitate. So Lord, in, in whatever way we have influence over other people in our life, May we seek to show forth the integrity, the character, the God-centeredness of the Apostle Paul. And in so doing, Lord, may we be a godly witness for you each and every day of our lives. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.